Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll ever need to bet on sport. Did you know you can create personalised bets with Bet365? So if you fancy Arsenal to win at Burnley this weekend and Martin Elliott to score the winner, Bet365 Bet Builder lets you calculate the odds for any game. It's right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Good afternoon, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by our regular guests, The Athletic writers, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Good morning. Good morning, Ian. Hello. Good morning. And down the line is a man who played 619 games for the Arsenal. It's Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. Good morning. How is everybody? I was just miming the kind of applause uh, little sort of jingle that we needed after. We can drop that talking in. about Lee Dixon's. <laughs> we could do it all in post. No it's it's a special day for, that, for that, that, Come on. There's a lot of there's an awful lot of thought gone into this program when James said, "Yeah, we can drop that in later." <laughs> just looking at Tyos. Well, we'll sort that out. Well, the point is, the point is, is as Amy said, uh, it is a special day. Because on this day in 1988, Lee, uh, you would well know, you signed for Arsenal, uh, incidentally for a fee that was just over Mesut Ozil's weekly wage. <laughs> just so as you know. Uh, so oh. be- before we get to our main topic of conversation, um, I thought I'd ask for your favourite January signing. Uh, Amy, can we start with you? Um, I'm I'm going to... Well, just it's not my favourite necessarily, but I thought it was worth noting that in January 2001, Edu was signed by Arsenal apparently but it was a delayed uh, arrival some of you will remember he had some passport issues so um, uh, Pablo Mari is not the only Brazilian sort of coming and going and <laughs> coming and going potentially uh, there is a history right, of that right. uh, Edda will be able to share stories of his own experience he had to wait a little while to resolve certain passport scenarios um, anyway my favourite probably you know when you see See, you see someone first, or you see something first, or hear something first, and you're like, ah, oh, before it's before it's big, and you think, ah, oh, I know that they're going to be brilliant, and I've knew about them ages ago. Well, I saw um, Abu Dhabi playing for France's under-19s. I was sent to Belfast for some tournament, and uh, I remember sitting there, and it was like I'd seen a vision. <laughs> you know, the classic next Patrick Vieira stuff, because obviously there was a, a physical yeah. resemblance, and they yeah. played in a similar position. Um, but he he just looked every inch that next Patrick Vieira type, and I remember coming away thinking, "Arsenal, oh, I've got to sign this guy." And then they did, like a little while later. So he remains one that uh, I, I feel for because he should have had a, t- a totally different career. He was an immense talent that never was allowed to be realised. Okay, James. Well, I think there's a correct answer because we <laughs> we got Pierre Emerick Aubameyang in January, and we I did. don't know you, if you can say better than that. 
I, but personally, I would probably have a bit of a niche cult choice, which is Andrea Sharvin, because I just loved him as a player and what he did in that Euros playing for Russia. I was so excited when he arrived. It was quite dramatic. It was snowy in Hertfordshire at the time. And I just remember those scenes outside the Emirates Stadiums, all the fans gathered. I mean, I, I guess another one who didn't quite deliver on that potential, but he did give us that goal against Barcelona. Do, do you remember when he signed and the snow was falling and he stood there and went in his great accent, I am Gunnar. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> Lee, do you have a favourite January signing aside from when you signed? Well, it, it's, it's just sticking in my throat right now that um, that you came on, you started the programme saying that I signed in January and then two of my closest colleagues <laughs> just, just mentioned two other players. And they, 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 I didn't even get a sniff. Um, and one of them used to wear my number on his back. I don't know if you remember that, Amy, but yeah. it doesn't. Two <laughs> anyway, I because I got left out of those two, I'm going to pick myself. <laughs> oh yeah, I, only because um, because not not because I think I'm the greatest signing that in January it's ever made, but it was the best day of my life. So it has to be um, me signing. So from the inside of my own head, um, looking at me signing, what a day that was. So yeah, best day of my life. Lee, I know you've told this story before memorably um, uh, when we were putting the 89 film together, but just kind of quickly, if you want to run us through um, that fantastic story of you coming down and meeting George at the service station, because it is very redolent of a different age Uh, of transfers. I've told this story a million times, so apologies to people who've heard it, but um, yeah, coming down with um, Mick Mills, uh, travelling down in his car and meeting George Graham in a Daimler Sovereign and he was parked in looking with his suit, Arsenal blazer and tie on, looked a million zillion dollars and I had a pair of jeans and a t-shirt on and got into his leather smelling car and re- just reminded me of my dad's because my dad used to have a Daimler Sovereign years ago and uh, and got in there, scared little boy, um, 22, 23 years of age, um, very imposing figure, George and basically told me I was going to sign that day and what an opportunity. And then and then promptly mentioned that I was he was offering me a wage that was exactly the same uh, as I was getting at Stoke City and promptly got some... I got a brave all of a sudden and said to him, I, I can't sign for that because I've got to bring... I've got my boys six weeks old. I've got to sell a house and buy a house in London. And he basically got out of the car and said, right, deal's off. See you later. I didn't realise you were a money-orientated money grabber and got out of the car. And I cried all the way back to Stoke with Mick Mills in the car saying, what have you done? And I said, I just asked for the money you told me to ask for and you've ruined the deal. And then I came down the next day because I called George up and I said, I've, I've made a mistake. I need to speak to you. And he said, OK, come down on the train. And then it all gets really emotional for me now even thinking about it now walking up those steps to see Herbert Chapman looking at me staring at me as I walked up in this horrific Marks and Spencer's green and blue jumper that my (laughs) daughter still wears to this day when she's slobbing around her flat and um, knocked on George's door and said right that's it I'm going to sign where do I sign and George with a little his little cocky smiley had on his face that I can see him now standing behind his desk going, I knew you'd be back. Um, and I just made it my job that I was going to walk out those uh, that marble halls with a contract in my hand and there's no way I was going to let it 
let this day go. And that was on the 29th of January, 32 years ago. So um, George had, knew he had me hook, line and sinker. And uh, it was it was Herbert Chapman's staring eyes that did it. I couldn't let him down. <laughs> Herbert Chapman's eyes. The follow-up to Kim Carnes' Betty Davis eyes, I believe. Um, <laughs> by the way, all right. So, uh, well, thank you for signing, Lee. We appreciate it. 619 <laughs> games. Uh, if I have to pick one, Kim Calstrom. What a career he had. Uh, <laughs> for January signing now he scored a very important penalty he did score a very important I penalty I like him give you that one now uh, it's all about the youth this week now we had a great win away at Bournemouth in the FA Cup on Monday night and a lot of it was down to some amazing young talent we've got coming through at the club so we thought that this week We'd have a more in-depth chat about the production line that comes out of Hayland, which is the academy. Now, Amy, you've been down to Hayland. What are they getting right? Well, well, just in terms of the facilities, I think it's worth noting that Arsenal spent quite a lot of money in upgrading those facilities fairly recently. Mm -hmm. Um, they, They have been based there for, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years. Uh, and the actual kind of place where you used to go in and get changed it it felt very old school at the beginning it was a sort of old-fashioned building um you know nothing spectacular uh you know for that sort of first generation of, of young players that came through and more recently they've spent millions on it and it's a sort of mini replica of London Coney now which I think is interesting from the point of view that it's obviously very aspirational and it feels connected so there is this kind of invisible line that takes you ideally from Hellend to London Colney and on to being a professional if you become one of the lucky 0. whatever percent who, who go on to make it. What what I thought was amazing was, I mean, you know, they've got a lovely sort of dressing rooms and for each age group and, and canteen and all the facility, uh, gym. And I was interested to see quite young players doing gym work and, and physio work. You, you know, you think, gosh, they're only little kids and they're, they're doing sort of, you know, particular, very specific strengthening. So if you're a young player, you might be have a session when you go there one of the days of the week to train where you also have some one-to-one time with a, um, a strength and conditioning coach who deals specifically and gives you personal exercises for your own body shape and the phase of development and growth that you're going through. They have um, also, which I think is pretty right on, um, a, a, a department just pretty much based on I suppose you call it mental health. I don't know quite what the description is, but looking after the minds of these young boys who are dealing with pretty remarkable levels of pressure. You, you, if you think about a, a, your, a, a youngster coming through, where's your pressure coming from? It's coming definitely from your parents and your family. It's coming from your peers. It's coming from your coaches and it's coming from yourself. So there's a lot for them to be taken on. And I think they try and guide these kids as kind of holistically as they can to try and keep their heads on straight, which is not easy. And Per Mertesacker has got a lot. He's very bothered about that. So I think he's influential in that regard. But you notice it's such a calm atmosphere there. Yeah. The kids turn up, they, they, they go get trained, they come out to, for a session, they shake hands with their coach. You know, it's a little touch, but, you know, it's respectful and I like that. They... Um, uh, there's no one shouting you know this kind of impression that you get in grassroots football of people on the, the sidelines screaming at kids to do this or that it's not an impression it just it does happen well, of course it happens um, yeah. they're really good in that environment now of tr- of making sure that they let kids make decisions for themselves um, they want them to grow up being able to work things out on the pitch and not everything to be told for them 
Lee, Lee, I mean, you when you started, where did you where did you do? Where were you a youth player? Well, I mean, I kind of was a bit of a late developer, so I missed the the all important as it was then the apprenticeship from leaving school at sixteen to eighteen when you would when you would then be up to be signed pro. So I missed out that I was at Burnley at the time as a schoolboy, and I kind of just missed the boat as in as in going for a trial, and they'd already picked that year's apprentices. So I I got offered a, a non contract. Um, uh, situation where I, I carried on I went to college and carried on my education but I went down in my school hol- in my college holidays and trained as, as much as I could and also then played in the the A team and the B team as it was then <clears throat> so that was so I missed out on those I think very important years of developing and learning um, what it's all about to be a player training full-time being around other footballers who are going through the same problems as you. Um, and I, I think that was, it was a very important time I missed out on. Luckily, it kind of, I say it didn't affect me. I, I missed out on a certain amount of fitness and the, the rigours of full-time football is quite hard to explain to somebody who doesn't, it's like any job. If, you, if you're doing it part-time, it's when you go into it full time, you are totally immersed in, in in what you're doing, the thought processes, and you're constantly thinking about your body, and I, you know, how am I feeling? What am I eating? You should be anyway. That's kind of how how your education should be. And these these kids now, in and Amy's just mentioned the hugely important side of strength and conditioning and sports science in, in the game now that we never had as as young players going into the game, and we just used to play until we drop you know, run till we're sick, all of that sort of stuff and and get injuries. And long term, you know, I can hardly walk now with my right knee and I'm going down the road of having a knee replacement pretty soon like Tony Adams has just had. So I'm not saying that kids won't have injuries. They will. My my son's a strength and conditioning coach for the Lionesses uh, for, for England. And the stuff that he's talking about now, that the, the younger players are, are, are being assessed about and and helped with is is invaluable for that for that development and we'll see, and we'll see that we've seen that with the the young lads who are playing in the first team now that the the fitness levels and the strength of these guys is you know far beyond what what we were capable of and that's only got to be a good thing but just sorry to flip into the what what Amy said about the mental side of thing that that's a huge part and that was certainly never available it was you know you had to turn into a man when you were 16 and be strong and not show anyone your feelings and run through walls and not tell anyone you were injured all, all of that stuff and the game is, and the mental side of the game has changed because and the difficulty is you've got to there's a balance because you you basically got say you've got 15 20 lads you basically know that maybe one of those or go through two if you're lucky to go through to play first team level from the from a really young age and you've got to give them all the the ability to go to think about being that guy so being positive and and all those positive things but on the flip side knowing that at some point you're going to have to tell him that you're you're not making it and you've got to go and do something else. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think what as well is important to bear in mind is that these kids, not only are they training and preparing to play, but they're also undertaking a full education programme as well. I mean, all the kids at Arsenal do a full, I think it's eight GCSEs. Um, Bukayo Saka, who has gone up to the under-23s and now the first team, is still undertaking a BTEC. 
So Arsenal are very careful to ensure that players do get the requisite sort of grades and what they need that if they don't make it in football, you know, they do have stuff to fall back on. But do you think that is do you think that is something that is absolutely a must nowadays that they have to do that sort of, of stuff? Of course, the statistics tell you that and that was actually something when I was describing the, the training ground that I, I, I forgot to say, but they have a big education facility there as well. So it happens on site. So they've really got everything in one place. But and Lee, the they're way... really they're really keyed up to make sure these boys are not allowed to slack. They have to they have to do their their work. And, and, and if they do get promoted to the under twenty threes or senior team, they get one to one tuition. So that that duty of care sort of stays there. And talking to Per Mertzacker earlier this season, that's something that he's absolutely insistent upon. It's really interesting. You know, he's come in as the head of the academy, and you expect him to be talking primarily about producing players for the first team. But every conversation he has, public facing, is about looking after the players who don't make it. And I think for him, that comes from the sense that he was never necessarily the kid that people said was going to make it. He was never the guy that people thought, you're definitely going to be a star. So he always had that duality in his mind of like, am I going to be a player or am I not? He always prepared himself in that way. And now it's good to know that we've got someone like that in that position, passing that on to to the kids. I mean, Lee, when you were coming through... Not, there was none of that help with a with the mental side of things, as you say. It was it was purely. I mean, Amy, myself, and Amy were talking about this yesterday, and you were talking about other academies where it was essentially it was a bullying culture. It was it was the survival of the fittest, really. It was a bit Lord of the Flies in there, and and that didn't really cater for any of the kids who were a little bit shy, perhaps. And it also certainly didn't help any of the kids who didn't make it, which was most of them. No, absolutely. It was a, it was a brutal, uh, uh, you know. It was the great. It was a great thing to be attached to a club, to get your chance to play in an a, a B team, and then all of a sudden an A team. And then the dream was when I was at Burnley, and I was sort of sixteen, seventeen. The dream for me was to get in Burnley reserves because that meant you played at a proper ground and nobody there, obviously. But it was kind of like wow, that was the. The, the the actual holy grail and the first team was was never almost never an option because you kind of just you you're battling to get your next game in the in the in the team that you're you're hoping to get into and you're so young you've got no no tools whatsoever you've let I mean certainly when I left school at 16 and and went to college you know I was I, I kind of I, I didn't know anything I didn't I didn't know I didn't know how to to do anything you you're so young and you're thrown into this this really aggressive uh male orientated testosterone world where you go well just you know sink or and you're right it's sink or swim and if and you would just literally discard it if you weren't good enough for you and yet now there's a flip side of that saying it, it makes you tough it makes you you know certainly from my point of view i think i got the best out of out of my ability because of the hard regime I, I was brought up in. And it was like, I've got to fight for this. I'm not giving in. And it was part of my character. Um, but there's certainly, if you didn't quite have that in your character, you were just strewn and you were thrown to the, you know, in the gutter. And it, it sounds brutal. And it was brutal. Loads, loads of the kids I grew up playing with never heard of them since. You know, it's kind of like, where did they end up? When you look at the likes of Saka uh, and Ketia, Joe Willock and so on, who performed so brilliantly the other day, how, you know, how do you think their experience is in terms of, you know, they're still, got to, they're still entering a, a, a macho, adult, under pressure, scrutinised, tough world. They've still got to be able to cope. How do you think that, that, that their experience measures up? Well, I, what they're I, going no, through now. It's, I think that it was certainly changed. As I was a senior pro at... at um, at Arsenal, there was there was definitely still 
you know, a macho element to it. It was softening and, you know, players still started to talk about how they were feeling and stuff. And Tony, you know, that, Tony, you have to give Tony a shout for that but because of his his addiction and the fact that he'd, he'd done a lot of therapy and he started to talk about his feelings and the mental health side of things is a massive part of his life now and trying to pass that education on. Only late on though, Lee. Yeah, no, absolutely. Late on, it was, but it was just starting. And I, let's let's not forget, I retired in two thousand and two, so that's a long time ago. Um, and there's been massive moves. And the fact that Amy said, you know, Pemertesaka is very um, conscious of that is a brilliant thing. And these kids now are playing in the first team. There's a, you know, I'm still a little bit old school. Um, there's a, it's still a bit of old school in me that goes. They don't know. They don't know the ball now. They get it too easy. They get money too quickly. These, these lads are now. It's a different era, and they and they they've got to learn to cope with different things. The the, the media side of things, the social media side, of it, it's all different problems that I didn't have, but they've got to deal with it. So the, to compare them to me coming into the first team at Burnley is like it's almost like a different game. Yeah. It's a different game now. I mean, it was interesting. I read a piece. Jonathan Liu wrote a piece after the Chelsea game about about Martinelli. Um, he said the decision not to sub Martinelli, he said, I wanted to leave my attacking players on. I wanted to see how they could respond. I didn't want to make a decision that didn't let them decide for themselves. So it's mm. partly with the young players about letting them take some responsibility, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Martinelli is a great example of someone who's done that better than most. But it, it is that balance, isn't it, of wanting to make sure players are, are properly protected, that they're in a secure environment, that they're coming into a team with a plan that supports them, but also wanting to give them some autonomy. And what's really exciting, I think, about some of these youngsters we're seeing in the Arsenal team at the moment is the way in which they do seem to take control of scenarios themselves. I mean, look at that left-hand side. It's Martinelli and Saka. We talked about it last week. Two kids combining, working together. Uh, it's really, really promising stuff. Lee, when you came into the club... Um in 1988 you joined a, a, a period where Arsenal were very quickly phasing out a lot of older experienced players who George Graham thought was swanning around not really putting in the hard yards and and he put his faith on a core of young homegrown London boys predominantly which were coming through at the time an incredible generation of talent uh, Tony Adams uh, Michael Thomas Dave Rocastle Paul Merson etc etc yeah. What was it from from your point of view having that in a dressing room? What do you think potentially, if a you know a group of sort of Saka, Willock, and Ketia, so on, can can bring to a more experienced dressing room? Well, I think you know you each one feeds the other. It's, there's definitely an element of of the senior players need the youngsters, and vice versa. There's there's um, if you can get the balance of that right, and the and the senior pros are, are open to the fact that. Some some senior players get get bitter and twisted the fact that they're being phased out and the, you know I ne I never saw it like that I always you know I was reasonably pragmatic and thought, as soon as my legs started to go oh, <laughs> yeah I'm starting to lose a little bit there Ray Parker come here get a bit closer <laughs> I'd loved having Ray around and Kev Campbell and people like that because they would do my the hard yards that you know I've I can get them out of trouble with my brain and and I needed them to get me out of trouble with their legs. And there was definitely a, a synergy there. And I think these lads now, that's been a criticism in the past, or not a criticism, an observation of mine in the past about the dressing room. The dressing, Forget the pitch for a minute, because you kind of go out and play and, and everything that you're doing on the pitch is a, is a 
a, a direct result of what goes on from Monday to Friday. So that dressing room at London Coney's is almost, well, it is in my book, more important than the dressing room at the Emirates. You know, you that's where you learn your craft on the training pitch. You, that's where all the problems are, are ironed out, the, the grievances, the, the learning of watching. I used to watch... You know, I used to watch just, you know, uh, Kenny Santon when I first got there and and David O'Leary and, and I used to watch them lacing their boots up and how, how how when did they put their kit on? And it seemed stupid at the time because you've got to be your own man. No, you you take bits off off them and go, well, I'm, I noticed that he gets a bit, he goes quiet, just, you know, he go quiet just before we go out on the pitch. What's that? What's he doing? You know, and I'd say to Kenny Santon, what what's going through your mind now? And all of that information that you don't have a clue about, if you never ask anybody and you don't talk about that stuff, you 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 go through your career as yourself. And that's fine. But I think if you can pull bits from everywhere, it's like you broadcasting and writing and journalists. If you can pull all the best bits out, the people who know or have been around you a bit longer and get their best bits, leave all their rubbish bits on the floor then that that obviously and that's a that's a motto of life if you can do that through your life you're not doing too bad well i also i mean we we've all heard the story about righty watching you know rooming with dennis Bergkamp and saying oh dennis wears pajamas i'm going to get pajamas <laughs> yeah. i mean that sort of stuff yeah. is what makes a difference the other thing about this this young talent and as you said in that that team that george graham built with local talent homegrown talent i mean tayo our producer brought this up what it means for the crowd when you get a young kid that is coming through, we've all responded to Martinelli and to Saka and to Willock. It, it yeah. feels it's it's exciting for us as fans. Absolutely, yeah. And you want to give them every chance. And to be honest, that's a good thing at the Emirates Stadium because we're not necessarily <laughs> the most patient crowd. So anything that gets people off people's back, I think is quite helpful. And Lee mentioned London Colney there. I was just thinking about how the architecture of London Colney sort of reflects that journey from the academy to the first team because... The academy dressing room is sort of at one end of a corridor and then there's like this long corridor towards the first team dressing room and I think there are pictures of academy players who've come through in the past along it and it's this sort of symbolic journey from one to the other and, and one guys like Saka and and, uh, and Nelson and others have made this season. It's a huge moment in the life of a young player if you get to graduate from one side of the building to the other. Mm. It's like your passport you know, to the next stage of the game. Um, the, 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 when you essentially clear your locker and you get invited around the other side, that's something that they they would have all been dreaming about. You know, in the case of someone like Saka or Willock, since they were seven or eight or nine years old at Hale End, huge. Well, it has to, it has to be a th- it has to be a thing, Amy. You have to, it has to be whether it's you know changing dressing rooms at London Coney because there was only six players in each one and getting an upgrade to the to the bigger one and, and eventually getting to seeing some first team players. But we, you know, when I was at Burnley, when I first signed for Burnley, we weren't allowed in the first team dressing room as 16 year olds, unless we knocked on the door and we, and we actually had to wait for someone to go, right, come in. And then you go in and it became a thing. Oh, I went in the first team dressing room and it, I'm not saying you go back to those days. I'm saying it, there has to be that passageway. There has to be that, transfer from one place to another and you have to earn those stripes in order to get to that position and that just comes with ability attitude all the stuff that make a player and it has to be in you in in all your years lee at the club did you and i'm not expecting you to necessarily name names here but did you see young players come in come into the first team dressing room and just not cope 
I mean, how you know, we're taking it for granted that there's this bunch that have all come through and are all looking like they're going to be proper players. Yeah. Are there some that you can remember where you just, for whatever reason, they couldn't take it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not easy. It's it's a place of uh, you can see you can see the fear in people's eyes, and I and I and I hope those days are, are not like that now. I feel that the the younger players now have got more confidence. They've got a, a kind of a, a an air of uh, a cockiness about them that's that it, that it can be nurtured into a really good positive thing. Um, the money side of things. Hunger drives performance. That that's always been a motto of mine. You know, if you're hungry, you you get that extra bit out of yourself, and um, and that to a certain extent is slightly taken away now. But that's that's not to say that they don't care and they, and they give up. Of course they don't. But there is there is an element of you know ability to 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 go out and and do your best, but and then all of a sudden double your wages like we used to if we won a game. It's kind of like wow, I'm going to run and run and run today, because we you know we get an extra five hundred quid if we win today. Well, not I'm going to knock knock my lights out, and so there, that's a, that's a, an extreme example. But that hunger does drive performance, and that fear of failure. I think is a is a good thing as well because they've got so much to lose now, like we did, because we we wanted to play the game professionally and be footballers forever, and all those kids do. But the difference is now as well, they've got the added thing. If they don't make it, then you know they 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 potentially lose out a huge amount of financial gain because of what footballers earn nowadays. So it's, it, there's a flip side to everything. But that dressing room is a scary place. Um, for any youngster going in, Amy, and I'm sure it hasn't changed. Hopefully it's a little bit more mellow than it was. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in the style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape. And then a personal stylist will send you five items of clothing. Try and everything at home. Style with other items in your wardrobes. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk stroke athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot uk forward slash athletic. What are the academies looking for? What when they're looking at players? What are they looking for? I suggested courage. Right, it was one of the things you were talking about, Amy. Technique. Well, and, I think speed and... is massive. Um, when you the people that uh, uh, you speak to around the the game, uh, you often find that there's a, whether it's a physical speed or a speed of thought thing. If you can't do things quickly, it, that can I think count against you when academy decisions are being made. Mm, well, Arsene Wenger, I mean, used to say that basic technique is formed by about seven or eight years old didn't he? I mean he was pretty insistent that it comes really really young I mean I know he's a bit of a purist in that respect but I think Amy's right athleticism is a big big part of it of course it is I mean look at the speed at which the modern game is played you know you have to reflect that in the academies yeah it's not just technique it's character as well by the way if you don't get them by five they're gone the kids <laughs> I'm just just by the way it's a personal thing uh, anything else Lee any any other things that they're looking for 
I think I think they I think what they're looking for is is a broad um, spectrum of of all sorts of abilities and, and all, what you've all just mentioned they all go into the perfect player and there'll be different different percentages of that in certain different players but ultimately you do get noticed if you've got pace you will get noticed. if you're in a trial you got pace you've got well see how fast he is so the, so straight away a coach will be going oh we can you know pace wins games there's no doubt about that. And it also saves goals. If you've got a quick player, you can you can mould them a little bit. Then then also they have to look at immediately after that. You have to look at technique and intelligence. It's no point if you've got no football intelligence whatsoever. Then I'm, I'm played against a million of them. Uh, and with <laughs> some <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can get a winger who's you know Kroenke was a perfect example out of Chelsea. He, you know. I, he was kind of like one of the easiest games I had and he was one of the fastest I've ever played against because he just go, oh, okay, just open the door down there, he's coming because he would run off the pitch with the ball if you let him. So it, there needs to be a certain amount of football intelligence and technique and strength. You know, you've got, you if you're too weak and you, but ultimately it, it I, the biggest thing for me is you've got to have a, you've got to have a heart and if you haven't got a heart, it doesn't matter how quick you are, how technically gifted you are, how strong you are. If you haven't got a heart, you won't last two minutes in this game. Who was that, Lee? Jesper Gronke. Oh, Jesper Gronke, yeah. Uh, He was quick, yeah, Danish, wasn't he? Yeah, Yeah, nice fella as well, but just, you know, didn't know what he's doing. I was just going to add on the end there, it's interesting we're talking about that athleticism and that size, and one thing you can't predict is how different academy kids are going to develop. And we've got a guy, Eddie Nketiah, who was released from Chelsea in his mid-teens because he was too small. Yeah. And now he's scoring goals at Arsenal. So it just there's a lot of guesswork, I guess, involved on the physical side because you just don't know what kind of changes a player's going to go through. No, that is very true. I got released at, um, at Man City as a schoolboy because I was too small. And it's like, OK, well, I'll go off and... Grow. Can... <laughs> Lee, it's been lovely uh, to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for joining us, as always. My pleasure. See you soon. 375,000 quid for that, for 619 games. and uh, Absolute legend. Amazing. Uh, things have changed somewhat. Now, of course, uh, you guys have been writing. James, particularly, you have been writing away for The Athletic. One of the pieces... Uh, you wrote uh, in the last week was about our fitness or uh, or lack of it in some cases. Uh, you talked to Darren Burgess. Yeah, Darren Burgess. He was the director of high performance. Uh, came in in 2017 and left this summer 2019. And, you know, it's been an interesting discussion, hasn't it, this season, especially with Mikel Arteta coming in about the fitness of the players and what has changed. I mean, what I would say is the staff are predominantly the same as they were under Darren. You know, the, the same people, Shad Forsyth, people like that, are leading the fitness efforts. So one can only assume it's down to the training, maybe, that they don't quite seem in the shape they are. I think Mikel's quite demanding as well. Maybe his standards are maybe higher than what was there prior. But it was interesting talking to Darren about the different players he's worked with and and just what they're like in training. I mean, Aubameyang, he just couldn't stop talking about what an awesome athlete he is. And what was interesting was it isn't just that sprinting capacity, it's the capability to repeat that again and again in games. And I asked him the obvious question, which is, can he sustain it? And he seems to think he probably can. So I wouldn't sell him to Barcelona anytime soon, that's for sure. (laughs) 
although we have what looks like a ready-made replacement if he does go. But <laughs> but that that fitness, and as I said, that lack of it. I mean, David Luiz alluded to that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, well, I think it was interviewed after the Manchester United game mm-hmm. when he was talking about the Chelsea game and how they couldn't keep going for that last 15, 20 minutes. It just guess. seems remarkable, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you sort of, as a as a layman fan, expect a, a certain level of, of fitness to be able to get through a game, unless you're carrying an injury or, an, you know, unless mm. there's a specific reason for it. Some teams are fitter than others. Of though, course they? they are. Um, but, I mean, uh, when we played uh, Leeds in the FA Cup, I was chatting away to uh, Phil Hay, who's the Athletics Leeds guy who I was next to, and the, the, the energy that they showed in that first half was just extraordinary but only and, in the first exactly half. and i said uh, and i said do they keep this up is this is this how Leeds <laughs> play all the time like how the hell is this going on and he said well this is bielsa and bielsa's football follows a pattern and there's almost an anticipated drop-off come sort of you know springtime yeah. where you know his teams if you look back at, at even how he's done in in, in previous teams you know a, across the world there is this this uh scenario where he tends to have them out the blocks with this high energy until suddenly they just can't manage it anymore yeah well so I, I think it is it is hard I, I mean if you look at Arsenal last season they did uh, I think lead the Premier League for distance covered and high sprints which was sort of unprecedented really? so yeah so I mean obviously internally they were really quite <laughs> what, what content games with were that. They then? <laughs> well it's interesting that you say that because your memories of it are probably the final few games of the season yeah. where they did fall away and you do wonder if maybe this summer they thought well let's go a different approach let's kind of gradiate things a little bit more and now they're maybe not quite where they need to be so yeah it's it's a it's a balancing act I guess but that's where I mean we talked about this about Torreira a couple of weeks ago but it's you know his maybe level of sprints or this that or the other might not have changed that much but it's where he's doing yes. that that might be yeah. making the difference so perhaps it's you know it's that fine tuning that enables a team to feel like they can play it a certain way over a longer period mm. it's also by the way, about about not having so many injuries. I mean, we used to complain bitterly about how many injuries they had under Arsene Wenger in the last four or five seasons. The muscular injuries, and obviously Darren Burgess would have would have hopefully worked on that and made that a bit better. We don't see quite as much. We're a bit unlucky in other ways, but yeah. I mean, I think Arsenal generally are quite proud of how they've improved their injury record, dating back about five or six years now. There has been a sort of steady improvement with a few injuries that have been outliers that have kind of skewed the metrics, like Santi. Cazorla, for example, yep. you know that was something that was kind of a bit of a freak injury. But if you look in terms of how many players missed weeks through it, it skews the results. But Arsenal have got better in that regard. We've been a bit unlucky though in the last twelve months with you know Hector Bellerin, Callum Chambers, uh, Danny Welbeck. A lot of injuries that you would say, for the most part, can't necessarily be foreseen. They're sort of you know an unfortunate twist. So. That that's something that I think you just have to accept as part of Premier League football. Just on the fitness front, I did think that the Chelsea game was a real sort of shining light because you know ten men for most you know most of the game, and expecting Arsenal to fade off to be coming back and to be scoring late goals shows you that you know there is something there. It's getting mm. there, isn't it? Which is nice. It also helps to have, as Lee was talking about, young legs on that field who can go for ninety minutes in a way that maybe 
I don't know. Well, interestingly enough, Martinelli yeah. looked like he was absolutely on his knees towards the end of that that Chelsea game. And He'd yeah, run he so kept, much, and yeah, he kept going. I mean, it does actually bring us around to another piece you wrote, which is about Danny Ceballos. Yeah, he did look a little bit lacking in pace the other day when we saw him against Bournemouth. But you now, what's going on with him? Well, what's going on with him is that he's not happy with how much football he's playing, and it's the Euros in the summer. He, he's been part of that Spain squad, and he wants to continue to be part of it. Uh, and, and, he, and he now he sort of would like out, really, I think. And that's, um, you know, if you speak to his camp, the player would like to go somewhere he's going to play every week. I don't think Mikel Arteta's going to do that with him. And I sort of sympathise with his position there because Sabas, in all probability, isn't going to be here beyond the summer. So are you better off investing that playing time in, say, a Joe Willock, who's someone who's going to be with you for, you know, years to come? But you could say the same about Mesut Ozil, though, couldn't you? Well, potentially. I mean, I have to say, I was at Bournemouth the other night and... Uh, Arteta brought Ceballos on for the first time in his reign. Yes. He's been on the bench, I think, five times prior to that. Missed out on one match they squad entirely. And within a couple of minutes of him getting on, he was screaming at him, Danny, Danny. And he was trying to get him to move into space and find those pockets of space. And he clearly wasn't happy at all with the player's movement. So it does have that slight look that maybe he just it doesn't quite fancy him, really. One of the things that feels the case about overall since Arteta's arrived is that it's reignited that hunger in every player to play. They really want to be in the team. They, you know, none of them want to be on the bench. And I think there is a different vibe towards the sort of, te- you know, we don't have to go back too far. Where probably if you weren't playing, maybe you were just sort of rolled with it a bit because every everything was felt so difficult and negative mm. and stressful. And now there's this energy where it's like it must be. You must be desperate, chomping at the bit to get on the pitch and get minutes. And quite a few players, I mean, Guendouzi had to sit out a few games. Um, you know, Willocks had to sit out a few games. Players who were playing a lot more maybe uh, under uh, Unai Emery um, have been kind of having to, to, to wait for their moment. And I think they're all just desperate to be playing. Um, so it's it, it gives Arteta some interesting conundrums because I think obviously while there are particularly fitness issues at the back, he has got a lot more options in midfield, in midfield yeah. and up front. We're going to have a, a Bamiyang back, thankfully, very soon. Um, Lacazette's had a little rest. Uh, now you've got Martinelli. Doesn't look like an easy one to, to drop. I mean, there's there, there feels like more energy and more options further up the pitch. Great. It, 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 Ian, it, dear, dear listener, is swooning. His I'm, eyes are just glowing. Well, that because I haven't been this excited in quite some time. I mean, yeah. that's the basic uh, basic thing. Um, a couple of questions, by the way, that we got from uh, from Twitter uh, before we went on air. Um, Zohar Malamid asked, can you explain what sort of player is Matteo Guendouzi? I mean, is he a holding midfield player? I mean, I, get, I guess he is, but he can get forward a bit more. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, Guendouzi, because I think he's actually really multifunctional. I think that's sort of what's so interesting about him as a midfielder, that he can do a lot of jobs. And I think it's what makes him quite difficult to define. He does a lot of things pretty well and not one or two things exceptionally. So I, I think he's, he's a, an all-round 20, player. He's no, only it's 20, not a criticism though, at all. I mean, I think he is an all-round midfield player. What he doesn't do, I suppose, is get into the box. But I personally think he's best um, kind of in the role he played against Bournemouth. And, and what was good about that was he looked a bit more positionally disciplined. He looked to be a little bit more structured in his play. I don't know what you think, Amy. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that that's... I'm interested to see if he becomes kind of one of Arteta's projects because I think he, he does like to take sort of certain players and work with them specifically to, to redefine a bit about what they can do. Mm. And if he chooses, if he sees something, you know, enough in Guendouzi to think, I'm going to turn him into X because he still feels mouldable somehow. He yeah. still feels like yeah. the kind of player that he could be. He, he could be left alone to his own devices without that kind of specific idea and just go through his career playing in that sort of box-to-box slightly in you know ill-defined way or he could become something very specialized but that's really up to the coach and up to him to absorb it and uh, one more question from twitter this is from iron at i jansen uh, i hope i got that right with the emergence of martinelli as a, a genuine goal scoring number nine is it time for arsenal to cash in on one of uh, lacazette or Aubameyang? If a biggish offer comes around this window, this window, I'd say no way. Um, summer, I think, is probable. The contract situation with both of them having more or less two years to go puts very much focus on whether they sign or, or are sold. Um, it obviously makes it easier to manage the idea that one of them might go. The fact that there is some some talent emerging that seems remarkable. But the key is if there is that money that becomes generated is how it's used. And if Arsenal can go and find someone that can make the sort of difference to the makeup of a team as a Van Dijk, for example. And I'm not talking about necessarily exactly the same amount of money, but someone who's going to be transformative. Yep. Then you maybe have to sacrifice something somewhere else. Mm, I, I agree. I think come the summer, uh, we'll, we'll, we might see a change there, but you can't contemplate it in this window. Not right now. Uh, we've had some suggestions for songs for this week. Uh, Rado Petrov and Tommy T-Rex both said all the young dudes. Uh, David Bowie. Well, actually, it's not the hoople, but David Bowie wrote it. Uh, Dave Ashby. Uh, surely it's We're Back by the 89 Squad with Lee Dixon on lead vocals. <laughs> We should have asked him to give us a little uh, tune. Uh, James Graham, based on the reaction of the fans and returning excitement, it's got to be Relight My Fire. Uh, going round the table, have we got some suggestions well, for a song? I, I did have all the young dudes, so I've got to stay in that camp, really. That would have been my suggestion. Like it. What about you, Amy? Uh, well, I just sort of had that that picture of uh, Willock, Saka, and Nketiah uh, together at Bournemouth, which really struck a chord. It reminded me of how I used to feel when I watched Dave Rowcastle, Michael Thomas, and Paul Davis back in the day, and had the same song in my head. Sometimes when I used to watch Ian Wright and so on, and that's um, Bob and Marsha, young, gifted, and black. Who are young? Uh, can I have uh, Young Hearts Run Free? <laughs> no. Oh, really? All right. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> we have been Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. Thank you to James. Thank you to Amy. Thank you to Lee Dixon. Thank you, Teo, for producing us. Uh, and just remember, for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code ARSENALPOD. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. Thank you very much for listening. See ya. Mm-hmm.